welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazie Her podcast telling the stories of women living across rural and remote Australia. I'm Em Herbert, the host of our summer Life on the Land series, where the Grazie Her team choose their favourite story of the year and explain how it touched or inspired them or made them think about something in a totally different way. Today's chat has been chosen by Grazie Her team member, Amy Shan. Hi, I'm Amy and I'm the junior digital producer at Grazie Her. I look after most of the content for our online platforms and social media and also produce some regular features for the print magazine. There have been so many amazing guests on Life on the Land this year, so I found it quite difficult to choose just one episode. But I decided to go with a fellow horse person, Linda McCallum. I found Linda's outlook on life to be really inspiring. Her story reminded me that you never really know what someone else is going through behind the scenes, and also the importance of looking after yourself and your health and taking the time to slow down. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did. The futurity was about three weeks away. I was sent home to rest, but then my neurologist told me to just go home and live my daily life. So I got straight back on the horse pretty well, and I shouldn't have. Welcome to Life in the Land, Grazie Her podcast telling the stories of women living in regional, rural and remote Australia. I'm Em Herbert, your host for today. Many of us spend our days hooning from one task to the next whilst frantically keeping all the balls in the air, career, family, animals, properties and ageing parents. We tend to take our health for granted until one day, for some, there comes a diagnosis which leaves little room for complacency. This is the month for the May 50K raising vital funds for life-changing research for multiple sclerosis. There are more than 25,000 Australians living with MS, and today's guest is one of them. Linda McCullum is up at dawn most days alongside her husband Jim, training their homebred quarter horses for the next big cutting event, while running 400 head of beef cattle on their property near Walker in the cool New England hills in northern New South Wales. Horses are medicine to Linda and have been an integral component of her therapy since her MS diagnosis in 2018. But long before the appointments, the scans and the neurologists, horses were interwoven in the fabric of Linda's life. Very blessed right at this present moment. Um, So we moved to a property up near Walker in June of last year so in June of 2021 and we had lived around Scone all our life until that time and um, yeah we have a beautiful it's a beautiful home I feel so blessed and then um, I'm looking out a beautiful window and we have a, a lovely garden that's raining you know nature in all its glory and sometimes um, I do find that it's the best medicine you know if you're having a little day or things are going wrong if I just look and, and you look outside you'll always want to see something new or something different or sun shining on you know especially when it's a new environment mm. for us this is a very new place to live so um getting accustomed I guess to to the new view and then you always see something different it's um yeah it's beautiful it's a very lucky beautiful office what do you run on your property we have um cattle 
So when we purchased this property, we own um, country on King Island as well. And we bought back a lot of our cattle from King Island to stock our property here, just given, you know, after the drought, it was hard to restock um, given cattle prices. And um, we actually sold a portion of our property on King Island. So we were overstocked for what we still had down there. So we bought them back. They come all the way to here. So, yeah, we have cattle here. And um, of course, our horses, you know, we're two and a half thousand acres and it's, it's a lovely um, lifestyle. My husband was a stock and station agent before we moved for his whole life to move out of that game and just to be running our own place and making our own decisions and um, really enjoyable. We are enjoying the change of pace, definitely. Yeah, absolute bliss. And must be yeah. nice to have your um, husband unwed from his farm, as, um, sorry, from his phone as most agents normally have to be. Definitely. And I think, you know, Jim always talks about and his dad used to talk about um, because his dad's been an agent and it was family business, but they used to talk about how, you know, when before mobile phones, you know, agents would um, come home and be on the phone most of the night because that's Mm. what they had to do, you know, whether they're prices through from a sale or contacting clients. um, And often after they finished at the pub. So, you know, the, the family time was very cut into you know when before mobile phones and Jim said that was a big game changer probably in his family but for him and I is you know the introduction of mobile phones and knowing he could get his phone calls done before and then come home um, of a night time and be with the family so I think mobile phones for agents and agents families was a godsend Mm, life changer (laughs) yeah definitely and the um, island tell me about farming there and and how does that work and how often did you to go and how did that all look yeah for sure so uh we ran a family partnership with Jim's parents and um Jim and his father were agents it's going for years a long time um 30 or 40 years they had a client who a client came to Peter and said find me a place it was in the drought uh, if the early 2000s and he said find me a place where I'll be drought proof and they read uh, there was a there was a segment on um, landline about King Island at the time, and he'd seen that. And then there was an article in the land, and so this client said, uh, "Let's go to King Island. Let's have a look." So Jim's dad and the client went to King Island. Had Which a look is and where? He, I I've never even heard of King Island. So King Island cheese, you know, all the beautiful. King Island produce um, comes from the King Island dairy was very big at the time on King Island. So King Island is almost halfway between Tasmania and Melbourne. Okay. So you have King Island more on the western corner and Flinders Island more on the eastern corner of Tasmania if you drew a line from Tassie up to the mainland. Right. Um, yeah, and it's in the right in the middle of the Bass Strait. It's the most drought-proof piece of land that we've ever owned I guess and um, it's very the rainfall is pretty reliable and when they say they're going through a dry time we'll often go down there and go you know a dry time of a different standard (laughs) but um, yeah 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 but uh, it's it's quite windy and um, it's quite cold they never get a frost on King Island that's one thing it never gets below zero but it's quite windy but it is beautiful and um, so Jim and his dad used to go and class the cattle for their client and one day um, when the dairy industry was going through a rough patch a lot of some of the country come up on King Island and it was a good time 
for buying because um, there were some wind farms proposed on the island mm. and also there was an abattoir on the island and it closed down. Mm. So the, the internal environment of uh, cattle production, both dairy and beef, changed in a very short period of time on the island and a lot of country come up for sale. So Jim and his father saw this place, decided to buy it because we and um, we sold some other country and bought that and that's how we ended up down there. And Jim and his dad used to go down, uh, like they wouldn't go together all the time, but Jim would be down there probably once every six weeks, eight, right. eight weeks. We had a manager down there. Um, but... COVID was very difficult for running our place down there and um yeah that's become we we couldn't go there we haven't been there Jim has been there but I haven't been there for over two years now and um yeah we enjoyed it it's a lovely place to go and um it's got great golf course um beautiful food very fresh produce very organic um a lot of beautiful seafood crayfish that type of thing and um yeah we enjoy we enjoy going there as family and it's a really nice place to visit how interesting and super diverse you know going from scone to to king island it's uh, would be an interesting landscape shift definitely yeah and it doesn't come without its challenges because you're not there all the time so prior to moving we had a cattle stud and um and once we moved and realized how difficult it was we just went back to commercial mm. um, cattle because it was just too difficult to manage when you're not there all the time yeah, um, with, with the cattle. But it was um, just, yeah, the, the production capacity is incredible. So you, it was almost like a beast to the acre. And, wow. um, yeah, that, that part of it is fascinating, just what you can run and the production um, there and now the abattoir hasn't opened up again so you still have to um, ship the cattle um, to Tassie yeah. to be um, processed but um, definitely there's been a lot of change in the population in King Island so the population in King Island is only about 1500 in total but um, there are less dairies more beef production and there, um, there's been quite a few Queensland families that have moved to King Island and sold up in Queensland and moved down there I think probably similar reasons you know the the reliability of rainfall and the level of production that you can get down there but um, we thought about moving there from time to time with our family Um, especially when we we were considering Jim wanted to get out of the agency game and and we wanted a lifestyle change but and I and a cooler climate so it ticked all those boxes and that's why we moved to Walker the reason we didn't go to King Island was probably um I wouldn't be able to compete on the horses. So that was one reason to get to the mainland. Pretty major and also, reason. Yeah, pretty major. And also the opportunity for our children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they would, they would be educated in Melbourne and, um, you know, they'd have to come and go on a plane. But we just decided to, that, um, yeah, it just was a little isolated. But I think that is the appeal for a lot of people. Mm, yeah, absolutely. There's definitely pros and cons for both. Um, yeah. It's, you know, competing such a large part of your life. I can't imagine um, you putting that to the side. I mean, you've come off a horse just to, to chat to me this morning. So what has your morning looked like so far and what does the average morning look like for you? Yeah, okay. So we try and get our horses worked early. It doesn't always happen if we have other commitments. Um, so usually, yeah, we, we 
hop up and um, this morning I had to race to town to take my car in for a service and I have a girlfriend staying at the moment so she came and picked me up and we did sneak a quick coffee um, in town nothing Luxury. like a town coffee <laughs> so we had our town coffee and bought a couple of coffees back for Jim and um, Tara who works for us and yeah then we come back and we started to work some horses and I think we've worked about 10 this morning and um, yeah then I'm quickly race down and um yeah here we are in between juggling vets visits and jumping on training horses do you only train and ride your own uh, yes yeah so at the moment I'm classed as a non-professional in the cutting industry so I only train my own cutting horses at mm-hmm. this point in time um I'm not in the scheme of things and when looking at, at the big picture for our business development and the business plan that we've started McCallum Performance going forward. Um, I wouldn't, we were toying with the idea probably of taking outside horses and um, mostly because my real reason for doing that if I was to give up my non-professional standing and and become a professional trainer is because I really want to help people Mm. and I really want to help people get into the sport um and and I'd love to be out because I am a teacher and I'm a high school teacher and that's my training um I love to teach and I miss teaching and um I'd like to be able to share the knowledge I guess and and join the two my two greatest I guess professions and um passions in life being teaching and the horses I'd love to be able to join those and and help other people get into the arena no matter what whether it's cutting camp drafting cow horse um, or just to to be confident enough to get back on a horse mm-hmm. and compete or just to enjoy that's what I would love to do that that's where we're going with um, our new business model that we've, we're starting to develop as far as the horse is concerned in McCallum performance well I'd love to talk about the the sport of cutting in a, in a second but first I'd love to backtrack and just you know I was wondering have horses always been a large part of your life and, and what are some of your earliest memories of being on horseback Mm, so my earliest memories are beautiful and they really are very close to my to my heart um so I when I was very tiny my dad used to always take me to work and we lived at Tymore which is kind of east of Murundi Blanford in the upper Hunter Valley in the foothills of the Great Dividing Range and dad managed a big sheep place sheep and cattle and we had our own place next door and we used to go they were big days of mustering um, in the great dividing range that we would leave some days we would often take the horses out the back of the place the day before mm-hmm. and it was a good you know half a day a little more of riding someone would come pick us up we'd leave them in yards out the back of the place and then we'd go back in the car the next or the you the next day and then you know muster all day and do what we had to do so they were big days and yeah, I can remember being on ponies and all type of, um, I wouldn't say the most highly educated horses and, and helping dad. And, and one of my first memories on horses would be dad leading me on this tiny pony that I had. I'd been there all day with him. I would have probably been four or five. And um, I can remember riding along and I actually apparently fell asleep on the horse and fell off. <laughs> hit the ground so dad used to always remind me about that one and um yeah I wasn't much help on that day I don't think so it's always a sign of smoko when you (laughs) fall asleep and fall off your horse (laughs) yeah 
I must have got to the bottom of me that day. But um, yeah, so they're my early, earliest memories probably. And then I, I used to compete in pony club, did the pony club thing and go to pony club camp. It was great. And, and do the camp drafts and second rings and, you know, rodeos and things like that. And then um, as I went through, I did, uh, I progressed to more um, show riding, so hacking. And I used to go to the royal shows and compete um, on a, a hack that I had. And then I went progressed into the stock horse world and used to show stock horses and camp draft and then um, yeah, then found the sport of cutting and loved the training side of it and loved the horses and the athleticism and um, here I am. Did you think that you would be working with horses professionally? No. No. So when I was growing up, I, I, I always enjoyed horses. Um, but it was always something that my mum and dad were great and encouraged me to do it, but school was always first and getting an education was always first. So it was always expected that I would go to university um, and, and get an education, which is great. And I can remember when I finished my HSC, I, I um, floated with my mum that I would like to go um, to the States and possibly work for a cutting trainer. I didn't really know the deal at all, but I just had this thing. And it wasn't as easily accessible to go and do that at that time. You know, we're talking about 20 years ago and um, the world what didn't feel as small, I guess. Mm, you know, mm. it wasn't as easy to jump on a plane and have a gap year, so to speak. It was. I feel like it wasn't long after that, but... Um, for me anyway, I felt like it would have been a massive thing for me to, to do that. But I floated that with my mum and my mum said, Linda, I didn't raise you just to grow up to be some horse girl. Ah. <laughs> so I quickly put that to the side, the idea of that, and, you know, went to university and, and um, yeah, I never thought it would be something that I would be doing full time. But um, things have changed on a number of levels, I believe, I guess, it's great. I've learned a lot, still got a lot to learn, but I've learned a lot in the time that I have been in, um, yeah, right, competing in all horse sports. But also, I believe the value of training and the value of our performance horses has really increased exponentially in the last even five years. You know, people value that that mm. are in our industry now. So I believe the opportunity possibly has opened up for more people to be able to make a living um, by by breeding and training these horses um, for other people to be able to enjoy. Yeah, there's always been a connotation that it's pretty hard to make a dollar out of horses. And there's that saying that if you want to become a millionaire um, with horses, you've got to start with a billion bucks and then <laughs> you'll end up a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very, very true. And, I, you know, and they do... Along the way, there's unexpected things that can happen. They're an animal, and mm. um, and I understand that. But um, I believe that more Australians are embracing that way of life. That's how I feel. And and if people can go out there and purchase a horse, you never lose the training. It's always there, you know. And um, if someone can purchase a horse that they can enjoy on the weekends, you know, and work their day job, but they can go and enjoy a horse that's had the training, that's a pleasure to be around than it is or to go to work on, then it is, um, it, there's a dollar value, you mm. know, that, that goes into that, I believe. 
Absolutely. Well, tell me a little bit about cutting Um, for those that aren't in the industry or aren't even horsey, perhaps it can seem like a pretty bizarre sport from the outside. So I'd love you to tell me about um, what goes into it and how it is judged. One thing I feel like with cutting, it's very hard to get into the industry when you don't probably know people in the industry. And that's something that I'd like to, to help bridge that gap a little bit. Yeah. So cutting was first developed in the USA and it was developed by the ranchers and the cowboys who would go out and their job would be to separate the cattle and separate cattle on horses and you know that it developed into a bit of a a sport on the ranches and a competition amongst the cowboys where they would try to teach their horses to be able to separate one beast from the herd and keep it away from the herd without using their reins and that's where it first developed. Um, First come to Australia in the late 70s and um, it has been, yeah, slowly developing. The greatest event here in Australia in the sport of cutting is the NCHA Futurity. It's almost like the pinnacle event. And it's held in Tamworth in June each year. Unfortunately, that's been a little interrupted with COVID the last two years, but hopefully we're back on track this year. And basically um, the Futurity, a Futurity event is courses that are three-year-old and have never been shown before. And so it's, a, it's a, I guess it's a real test of your horsemanship skills to be able to train a horse so young to be able to um, think for themselves, you know, and um, separate a cow from the herd, keep it, you know, keep it away from the herd with your hand down and they can think for themselves. It's an incredible, incredible feeling, um, but it usually takes, you know, it usually takes us a good two years to get a horse to compete there and um, to have them physically fit, sound and, um, and mature enough in the mind. Uh, it's, it's a whole uh, lot of um, a skill set that goes into, you know, getting the horse to that event and, um, and having them compete at the top of the game. And for us, we start, we break them in between 18, 20 months and then we just chip away at them slowly over that time. And um, I'll ride them most days, I would say, you know, um, if not every day, most days we muster on our, our horses. We're lucky enough we're here on a property. So we use them for work. But um, this morning when I say I've been working horses, um, we were in the arena um, and, and basically just training on those horses to um, think about a cow you know, so that we can go and compete. We're going to competition this weekend. I have older horses plus maturity horses. So every day we're just um, training them, keeping them their mind right and keeping their technique right to be able to um, to go and compete hand down. And just how big is the sport in Australia? I know that it's huge in the US, um, but, for example, what, what's the prize money like at, at the Futurity here in Australia and just how big is the industry? Yeah, so at Tamworth, they give away $750,000 in, in prize money throughout the whole event. Wow. Um, the Futurity itself, this has always paid out a first prize of 75000 And for this year, it will pay, this is the open Futurity, so there's an open and a non-pro section. But the open Futurity this year for the first time will pay out 100000 Now, it used to be the largest paying performance horse sport in Australia. You know, in America, it's huge. But in Australia, it used to be. But there's been a huge growth 
um, in the prize money on offer and a lot of the big camp drafts, mm. you know, in Australia. So I, I believe that, um, you know, cutting doesn't, hasn't, doesn't have, as far as a first prize check, I think that amount of money over a week on offer over all the events would make it the largest, you know, um, paying performance horse event in Australia. However, there are camp drafts I know that are, that pay out a hundred thousand and more just for a winner of an event. So I believe, you know, now camp drafting is growing hugely, and I wouldn't be surprised if it, as far as what it pays out, actually it takes over cutting at some point. Yeah, it's wild. And, you know, you just have to drive past ALEC during the futurity to see the people and the rigs and the horses. Um, it, it is amazing to, to see. Mm. Why quarter horses and why are they um, used in cutting? Yeah, so quarter horses have always been the breed, I guess, that the preferred breed for cutting. Um, and quarter horses with a cow horse background, basically, that um, and the way that they think about a cow. But really, the, the physical stature of a quarter horse has changed throughout the years. So it used to be, they used to be quite small, quite stout in stature. And, um, and it was the, their ability for power and speed from this, you know, from a standstill to, to get to the head of that cow to stop the cow. That's why the quarter horse was always the preferred breed. Um, they've changed a little. They're a little more refined than what they originally once were. And um, they are probably got a little bit more height to them now. And um, I think they're a really um, versatile type. Um, but, yeah, the type of quarter horses has changed a lot um, in cutting over the last, well, since I've ever been watching it, for over the last 20 years, it has changed. And there's still, you do find your more traditional types, but uh, people do try and breed more and more. I'm more versatile type that um, in America can cross over to cow horse down the fence. Here, the cow horse um, deal is growing a lot. And also they could cross over into camp drafting because ultimately the training is, is what I believe you know, when we saw Nutrium this year and we saw the high price mare sell for 500, over $500,000 mm. and, um, you know, she was bred to cut, that mare was bred to cut. She was your, your typical new type of quarter horse and, um, and I believe the value goes into the training that's gone into that mare. She's pretty well set to go and do what she needed to do and she was, that mare was, um, anyone would be proud to own her. She was a beautiful type of mare. She was black. She had a beautiful temperament and she had a beautiful start in her training. So she ticked all the right boxes, you know, and um, and very much deservedly bought, bought that price, which was a new record for the Australian performance horse industry. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, mm. I think maybe cutting has become, or the cow horse has become a little bit more mainstream after Yellowstone gracing all of our TV scenes and all of a sudden we've just... Um, donning a hat like Dutton (laughs) well I want to be Beth but um you know (laughs) Linda you're too nice to be Beth (laughs) oh I just need a bit more Beth I do need a bit more Beth in my life but um, we all need a little bit more badassery (laughs) yeah maybe like the scene in the bathtub with the champagne but um other than that you know (laughs) I'll take a wardrobe (laughs) exactly but in the states they do say that 
that show has had a huge impact on the growth of cutting and reining and cow horse in America. So they have seen a huge resurgence of popularity of the sport and investment into the sport. It had gone through a little bit of a lull period and now it's at an all-time high. And a lot of the feedback from people I've spoken to over there say a lot of it is a result of Yellowstone. God, the power of pop culture. It's incredible. Oh, so incredible. It is. And, um, and you know, I think it's just that cowboy way. It's um, People see it to be a great lifestyle and, you know, want to be a part of it. Yeah, and they see Rip in his black hat and they think, I want a piece of that. Thank you very much. Oh, my goodness. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> more like Beth and a little bit more of Rip in their lives. <laughs> Sorority Clothing is a relatively new brand which was founded in 2021 by Cara who after living in London for many years wanted to bring a little piece of this to Western Queensland. A cattle property 80 kilometres north of Roma is where the idea was born to create quality cotton pieces that are not only wearable and timeless but would suit any age, shape and style. Liberty of London is a signature collection and the beautiful blouses, headbands and accessories have sold out over many times. Sorority loves colour and vintage style fabrics, so if you aren't a fan of floral, the gorgeous ginghams and stripes will really complement your wardrobe as most garments are trans-seasonal with all-inclusive sizing. Kara hopes to celebrate modern femininity by connecting with like-minded women who not only want to look good, but feel good too. Winter styles coming soon. Sororityclothing.net Well, in 2018, you had unbelievable success at the Futurity. Um, you came home with reserve champion of the show, which was uh, amazing. Um, but three weeks prior to that, you had a pretty life-changing experience. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about that and, and how that went down? In 2018, about three weeks before the Futurity, well, I'll backtrack before that, the Easter of 2018, which was in March, we were at an event and um, I started to get some bizarre symptoms, which um, I felt a funny feeling in my throat, almost like I was having a little bit of a, an anaphylactic reaction to something, so like a tightening in my throat and my tongue. And um, I thought it was something I'd eaten, so I actually took an antihistamine. I still competed. I did very well, but I would go to bed really early. I just didn't feel well. The week preceding that, we, uh, we were going to an event the next weekend, and I was getting ready for that and we were busy. It was a busy time. I was probably, you know, burning the candle at both ends when I look back at it pretty well. And during that week, I was driving along, I remember, and one side of my face went numb. And I, this is bizarre. I thought I was actually having a stroke. So I drove myself, as you should not do, to the hospital thinking I'm having a stroke. And um, uh, the medical stuff, but I was, it was just a virus. So... The long and short it was I spent six weeks going backwards and forwards to my local medical practice just trying to get answers for how unwell I was feeling and very bizarre symptoms. So numbness in my face, this um, full kind of feeling in my throat and in my tongue. And then I started to get a little bit of tingling in my left hand. And so I just progressively got worse and worse. Headaches, 
felt terrible, incredible fatigue, um, weakness in my left side. I ended up at the doctor's one day and said, I just can't leave here until I see a senior doctor because I just didn't feel like I was getting answers. And um, I saw the senior doctor and they prescribed me some new antiviral medication and um, I was I was upset. I, I like I just had a gut feeling. I was like, "This is not right," you know. And um, I drove home very slowly because I felt incredibly unwell. And when I got home, Jim knew I was unwell. He met me at the door to my car, and as I got out, I couldn't feel my feet, and I collapsed, and I couldn't feel my legs. So he um, just put me straight back in the car, took me to hospital. I ended up in John Hunter down in Newcastle and um, had an MRI and was diagnosed with, um, they called it CIS, which is called Clinically Isolated Syndrome, which is the very first time that you present with symptoms that could develop into MS. So basically on scan of my MRI, I had three lesions. Um, that they found on my brain, nothing in my spine. And lesions can come about um, from a, a variety of things in our lives. So it can be from stress, you know, from uh, as a result of a head injury. Um, alcoholics often you'll find quite a lot of lesions um, from alcohol. Um, so I, I was hopeful that that's all it was, and, but I was still unwell and they, there was a lot of inflammation in my brain as a result of the lesions. And so I was admitted um, and given some methylprednisone to try and get rid of the inflammation. Um, so I went home after that time and um, I'd had a lumbar puncture because they check your spinal fluid for um, any sign of, um, it, it, of, of basically um, lesion development in your spine. And I went home and I can remember I had a horse that I thought was pretty special in Metallic Storm for the Futurity. And I, um, the Futurity was about three weeks away. And I was sent home to rest, but then my neurologist told me to just go home and live my daily life. Um, so I'm not some, and, and as most people on the land, I'm sure, and who subscribe to this podcast understand Resting is not something that comes second nature to, you know, a lot of, um, I guess, women on the land or women with ambition, men as well. I shouldn't categorise to just women. And um, I found that difficult. And so I got straight back on the horse pretty well and I shouldn't have. And um, the next day I was flat on the lounge, massive headaches. And I rang, rang um, John Hunter again and, um, they got me back down there and basically I ha shouldn't have done what I'd done and I ended up with a leaking lumbar puncture site. Oh, no. So they had to give me a blood patch where they take blood out of your arm and put it straight in your spine to get Linda. the fluid back up around your brain, which is a horrendous procedure if anyone's ever had one because you actually have to be alive. Uh, alive. Of course you're alive. You have to be awake to do that. So you have to tell the, sur the surgeons who are doing that when the, the pressure is too big around your brain. Oh. So it, it was incredibly painful. And I, <laughs> I remember sitting there, like there on, in the surgery and I was in so much pain and I'm saying, yes, no, the pressure is enough around my brain. And I said, I've got this horse, you know, you're a little bit, I wasn't really probably quite where I should needed to be thinking-wise. And I'm explaining to a surgeon 
who had, knows nothing about equine industry at all. I've got this horse and the futurity's coming up and I need to be able to ride. And he just looked at me and pat me and said, darling, you're not going to ride again. I went, oh, and then I just started to cry. I was like, no, 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 no. Anyway, long and the short of it is, I did go, it was very painful, but I did, that was three weeks before the futurity. I gave myself a week and then I got back on the horse. And um, yeah, we handed him in the open futurity at Tamworth and um, it was an incredible event. I was very, I was still unwell. And, but Jim said, my husband, he's so, so supportive. He said, I'll look after the horses. And we had another, a, a wonderful girl helping us, Sarah Caslick. He said, you let Sarah and I look after the horses. You just hop on and ride. And that's what we did. And I just felt so lucky to be there. And I had it in my head because I just had this new diagnosis. I didn't know if I was going to be able to walk in 12 months time because you really don't know what's in store for you. And um, so I'm like, I'm just going to make the most of this. And um, I really was in a different headspace at that time. And that's what we did. And we, we, I won, I won three events and, you know, reserve champion open futurity. And I was um, third in the non-pro derby and um, third in the non-pro futurity. Like it was just an incredible event. We walked away with over um, $80,000 in prize money and inducted into the non-pro hall of fame. And when I look back, I just don't know. We were in a place in our mind. I, it's really, I was just so grateful to be there. And I was just there to um, to make the most of that event, and um, I didn't. I never, not once, did I put the outcome before the performance. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I just needed to execute. I didn't even think about the outcome. I was just so happy to be there, and um, I'll never forget riding in that Open Futurity final and listening to the crowd, and and I could, you know, I can still, when I think about it, I can smell, you know, the smells of the arena. I can hear the sounds. I can feel what it felt like under my feet because that's what I wanted to remember because I was so scared that I wouldn't be there again. So I was, I was really in the moment and I think that had a big part of, of how it all, all come together. Plus, you know, the power of horses, they're incredible. And I do think the horses I had maybe felt, you know, like Metallic Storm, that was the best he ever went for me. And, and he definitely, I think, um, I don't know, I, I believe they, they feel the importance of the moment and, um, and they rose for me as well, looked after me. A lot. Wow, I am absolutely covered in goosebumps. Like that—that that description is is so powerful. And uh, obviously, you you had the most amazing support team, but your mindset must have been so strong. And I think the focus, perhaps in a way, it was therapeutic and giving you something to really focus on in such a, mm. a horrific time. Um, could you tell me or describe? What is MS for one? And tell me a little bit about the condition, um, especially as this is, it's MS month, isn't it? May. This is the- yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Mm. So um, MS is, is basically it's an autoimmune disease when where your immune system, um, it's the white blood cells eat away at the myelin, which is like the protein covering around the nerves in your brain. And if you think of it like a power cord or your nerves like a power cord with the the plastic coating around and you know when it gets a little nick in there, sometimes it affects the ability of the power to be able to get through the cord. And that's what happens in your brain. So um, as your immune cells eat away at the myelin or the, the protein coating around the brain, 
it exposes the nerve. It's like a scar on your skin and exposes the nerve and the ability of your brain to transmit the messages to your body to be able to execute your tasks or, um, you know, little things like uh, eyesight can often be impacted, um, taste, anything. And that's why it's such a difficult, difficult disease um, to, uh, um, because all of people's symptoms are different. Mm-hmm. No two symptoms are the same. So people, as a patient and when you're unwell, you often present with very different symptoms. And um, so originally the inflammation around those lesions, they call them in the brain where the um, myelin has been eaten away, um, there's inflammation around those lesions. And eventually over time, getting the inflammation out of those areas and also um, you know, allowing time, three to 12 months, that lesion can heal. But um, the myelin can call, there can be a scar-like tissue there. So sometimes the um, symptoms that come with that lesion really can stay with you. But other times they can regress so that you don't feel them again. And um, and big part of the way I've had it explained to me lately, because I have had progression in the last 12 months. I hadn't for three years. I hadn't had any new lesions. And the last 12 months, I've had quite a few new lesions appear. But I never had new symptoms. And it was really bizarre. And I asked my neurologist to explain that to me. And basically, it was my MS nurse. She said, what this tells me is that because I, I lifestyle is a big part of how I feel like I'm dealing with this. So I'm very much into my overall health and well-being. Um, so my physical health, my physical fitness, but my diet as well. And um, I guess my lifestyle, you know, if I, if I eat well, sleep well, I get plenty of exercise and keep everything in balance in my life, I seem to be a lot, um, uh, I'm able to keep myself well versus if I let things slide and I I don't get enough sleep or I don't eat very well I can actually feel symptoms starting to come because it's inflammation in my body Mm. but he explained to me that the reason that I probably haven't felt new symptoms with the new lesions is that um, my brain health is really really um, I have really good brain health and I work hard on that so because I have good brain health the neuroplasticity of my brain is very high. So my brain at the moment is able to find alternative pathways to get the messages through to the rest of my body. Incredible. So it's important. It is incredible. It's so incredible. Um, so I started a new treatment to try and prevent the, um, I guess, the rapid way that the new lesions have been appearing because if I keep going down that path and I have a lot of new lesions and they have scar tissue, then you, you limit the neurological pathways where you're, um, you're able to get the signals through the, to the rest of your body. So where it was once MS, I believe, and even when I was talking to my mum, my in-laws, you know, they believe it, they, they think about MS in a way and they originally, initially think, you know, wheelchair-bound, disability, and that's where I've had people say things like that to me, like, uh, you know, you're disabled or you... Um, I'm a risk or I'm a liability. But MS have, has actually, the treatment as it has in, in the current, you know, medical world for a lot of various diseases and illnesses has advanced so much. And although there isn't a cure, 
there are a lot of drugs that actually can slow the progression down. And a lot of people live with MS and live a really full life, um, you know, and, and their life expectancy is not altered at all. Wow. It's just um, trying to, um, if I can keep a really healthy body weight, eat really well, keep really physically fit and active, the, um, my cognitive function as high as I can for as long as I can. So I'm studying at the moment and, you know, I, I like to read a lot and that type of thing. If I can try and do all of that, I hope that my um, the, the progression of my MS um, will be slow and um, or maybe even I can halt it altogether. And, uh, you know, just there's a few symptoms that come and go that I experience at the moment. And if, if that's as, as bad as it gets, that's good. And um, I have it in my mind if I can, you know, get a good 10 or 20 years and I, I have symptoms, but I can manage it. Um, sometimes I think maybe it was the little... Uh, tap on the shoulder I needed to alter my lifestyle because I did burn the candle at both ends and um, I've had to have a good look at that and rearrange things now and um, I'm grateful for that because we we're living living a really nice lifestyle and um, made some changes and yeah it's it's positive for me I feel like it's positive so how do you work on your brain health so basically I'm I'm Diet is huge, you know. I um I don't drink much alcohol at all, so I might have I do like a glass of wine, and I might have one once a week, you know, once a fortnight. I don't, and I savor it and I enjoy it. Mm. Um, but basically, the main ways that I do is diet, you know, fish oil, that type of thing is really important. I eat a lot of fruit and vegetables, a lot of I eat very raw, but um. I read a lot mm. and I, I try to um, study a lot and, um, and keep my brain really active. And re- in recent times, I have just started to write and I've really enjoyed that. That's the first time I've really delved into that, um, you know, that side of things. And I've really enjoyed that. And I'd like to keep progressing in that way as well. I do notice there are days where things come to me more easily than others. And I'm not sure if that's a general thing in writing, but even in the way that I speak to people or the way the conversations that I have, or if I'm journaling myself, there are days where I can, you know, pick a topic and journal and it just flows, or I can have a conversation with someone and, and, you know, the adjectives come to me so easily, you know, when I'm describing a situation, but there are some days where I just can't think of things as easily. And um, there are days where I think, and it's just started to really dawn on me, you know, there are days where I realise I might need to have a sleep or Mm. just look after myself um, a little better and then then the next day can be a different day altogether. So, yeah, for me it's diet, exercise, getting my heart rate up once a day is a big thing, Um, but making sure that I take the time out for myself as well with as far as my own well-being um, and rest and yeah. um, do the things that I love. So do they know what causes MS? No, and that's the, you know, originally it was thought it was genetic, but I have no genetic connection to MS in my life at all. Um, there have been a couple of theories. One can be that you can um, hold the gene, and I think this is with other um, big diseases as well, but you can hold, have the gene makeup that can make you prone to MS. And if you end up with a viral interaction 
at a, or a chemical interaction mm. at a certain point in your life that can trigger that to flare up, then that can happen. So um, one of the, uh, so it, I think lifestyle can be a factor that can contribute. So a lot of stress, um, viral interaction. So if you end up with viruses of any description at the, a particular, just the right time, you know, where there's some sort of flare up with your genetics with what's going on as far as um, a certain um, condition is concerned. The other, um, there have been uh, research papers that I've read with regards to exposure to um, certain chemicals. So um, I don't doubt that could be something for me because I grew up around sheep dip, you know, we used to end up covered in, in, in chemical. Um, so whether that could be something or, you know, even um, all kinds of chemicals, household chemicals, yeah. chemicals we used to use, you know, when we're cropping. Or the other one could be um, there's a certain disease that I've found in um, sheep that um, can actually have, uh, it's a bacteria that sheep carry and there has been a connection with that and um, and MS development. So it's interesting the other day when I was having my first infusion of my new treatment and I have to have that once a month in Tamworth Base Hospital and I was talking to the nurses there and she was telling me that their MS rep had come, come in that day or that week, sorry, and had told them how the diagnosis of MS in the New England and Northwest region had increased by hundreds in the last couple of years. And I, I said, you know, I said, why? She said, well, we don't actually know, you know, why that's happening. And then when we lived in the Hunter, I, had, I actually can remember asking the neurologist when I was first admitted at the John Hunter about um, MS in the Hunter, because I was concerned about living so close to the mines, you know, and, and, and the air quality in the Hunter. And um, they had done research papers about the cluster. There had been a cluster from different times in the Hunter. So in all honesty, you know, there are so many different theories, mm. but I think they're still working it out. Um, but I definitely, the, the definite links that I feel are out there is, viruses bacteria and chemicals mm. and lifestyle mm. um, and they're, they're the things in my reading that I've been able to um, to find a link to well I just think it's so pertinent the saying um, the DNA loads the gun but the environment pulls the trigger and for a lot of autoimmune conditions or a lot of chronic disease um, you know it, there's so many links to lifestyle factors but definitely and I don't th I think we underestimate the impact of stress you know in our lives because like 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 you say you know we can have that dna there but it's it's definitely our environment that pulls the trigger and um, i know i didn't put enough um value i think on um on living uh, on looking after the stress load mm. because i just enjoyed being busy and I enjoyed doing a lot, you know, and I enjoyed um, burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. And that might sound crazy, but I did. Yeah. And no was not a word in my vocabulary. <laughs> I, I, I just didn't understand what that meant. And <laughs> I still struggle with it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And this glorification of busy, I mean, we are socialized to be uber efficient and hyper productive, and that can have very tangible practical impacts on our biology on our epigenetics on the way that uh, the dna of our children so it's very interesting and, and i think as a you have you're a mother of two children you are so involved in your sport and your industry and your your work so i think it, it can be very easy to to not say no i mean there's a lot of factors are you a fatalist do you believe that um this was meant to be I do. Yeah, I definitely do. I never forget. Um, so my dad was tragically killed in a car accident on his way to work in 2014. Um, he was he was a livestock reporter. So he worked for the MLA and he reported on the country hours. Um, his name was Stan Watson. He was quite well known. Um, and he was, yeah, he was killed in a car accident. I remember the last time I saw my dad was at almost five days it was before he was he was killed and we sat on um the back veranda and I would always blow in and out you know um enough to raid my mum's slice container and the (laughs) lolly jar and you know say what I had to say and leave I was terrible I was always in a rush always oh dad hi how you going oh this is great thank you I'll take mum's chocolate caramel slice and see you later um (laughs) But this day, I remember Dad said, he was there by himself. He said, Lynn, come and sit with me. Sit down. And, we, and I said, Dad, I've got to go. He said, you need to slow down. He said, come and sit here. And we sat on the back veranda. And he made me a cup of tea. And um, so we had that and the slice together. And um, we had a great yarn. And um, he said, I really think you need to slow down. And then... Um, I look back on it and I did not at that time listen to my dad's advice, I don't believe, like in the way that I should have. And sometimes I feel like that was the first tap on the shoulder for the lifestyle that I was leaving. And now um, I didn't really listen. So I had the big tap on the shoulder when I become very unwell that time in 2018. And um yeah, and had this diagnosis. But I do believe this was something that, for me, it was meant to happen and I hope that I am able to share my story and, um, and, and that's why this happened for me, is that hopefully I can share my story and um, help any others with it in adversity. And I don't see adversity as just having a chronic illness. You know, adversity can be um, trauma, grief relationship breakdown relationship issues um depression you know it can come in so many forms financial hardship and um i guess that's where i hope that my story can help others that are facing adversity to know that um it's not a life sentence but it's something that can sometimes just shape our paths into a a new direction and um yeah, we can change our lives accordingly. Mm. It's a really beautiful perspective and you do share. I think uh, I think it must be quite empowering to take that perspective back from 
a condition that is out of your control in lots of respects, but being able to take back that is a choice, um, which you've obviously mm. taken on very consciously. You share it so beautifully in your writing online and I've been following your path for a couple of years um, and, and I'm always really, I guess, um, in awe of how you articulate your journey with your health as well as your uh, journey with your horses and, and everything that you're doing. Um, what was it like for you to, to start to write and what's the response been like from others? So I guess in, you know, what we've spoken about so far, the thing that for a long time I had a lot of shame with my diagnosis, I felt a lot of shame and embarrassment. So originally I told people and I, and I owned it and I tried to stand up and own it and then there was a quite, um, I wouldn't say a lot, but there was judgment that came with my diagnosis and there were people that disappeared from my life. I think um, often people don't know how to handle these situations, you know, and um, it's amazing in times of adversity, the people who you think might stand up and stand by you disappear. And then the, on the flip side of that, the people that appear in your life, you know, and, and everyone comes and goes and people aren't always in your life forever, but some um, people come for a reason. So for me, there was a lot of shame in the beginning. There was a lot of embarrassment. And then the, and I shared it, that I was diagnosed with MS. And then I regretted sharing it because I had, a, um, there was judgment that came back to me in the form of she has a disability, she's a liability, she's a risk. Um, I had, um, there were events where I became unwell during the event and it got back to me that people had said that I only use my diagnosis when, when it suits me. Wow. Um, and that's the hard thing with MS is you look fine. And I probably look fitter than I did pre-MS because I look after myself, you know. Um, I try to look after myself so well. So um, I, you look fine on the outside, but it never corresponds often to how you feel mm. on the inside. I think there's a lot of silent chronic illness in that way. Yes. And that's where it becomes very hard mentally in that moment. Am I making this up? You start to think yourself, you know, yes. am I making this up? And then I guess you feel it from other people. They can't see it. And it's very hard to articulate in a very genuine, authentic way to allow yourself to be vulnerable without feeling judged because people can't see, you know, see what's going on. Oh, there'd be so many so, people I imagine listening who also suffer from chronic pain who would feel so seen and heard with what you're saying because it is invisible. Yeah. And so hard I, to, to get your head around as a supporter or as someone within a, a wider support network. Very difficult, extremely difficult. And I'm, I'm lucky I have a really tight great support network around me but it's changed you know like it's changed over the time um Jim has changed my husband has changed so much over the time from when I was first diagnosed to now he's always been supportive but I know it's been extremely difficult for him because he can't see 
And the difficult thing that I find is that uh, we can have plans. And, and, and the reason that I wanted to share, which was your original question with regards to my writing. So I went through a period where I didn't want to tell anybody. So I took, I'd done the 50K in May MS. Um, it's like a, a fundraiser to help with MS research. And um, I, I had done the 50K in, in May for about three years. And um, I started to hear back some judgment and um, one of them come from a, a little short video that I'd shared once when I was walking to try and get some help to raise money and awareness for MS. And I talked about my symptoms and they said, but you become disabled. You've said it in your videos. And I went, oh, you know, that was that video the reason that some of this judgment has come about? So I took it all off my socials. I deleted it. I remember sitting there in tears one night and I just went right back through my socials and deleted anything to do with MS. And I've been lucky. Like I have had a psychologist that I've worked with since my diagnosis because I didn't want to let it take a hold of my life and, and my vision for the future and my hopes and dreams and my family. I didn't want it to let it impact, which it has. It has impacted my family. But and I just wanted some help, you know, and some structure in the way I approached this and so you know I just got to the point where so for 12 months I deleted I didn't want to talk about it I felt embarrassed I felt shame and then I decided before even knowing that I'd had a lot of progression that I think for my healing I wanted to share and I wanted to be vulnerable because I didn't want to portray you know that that everything's perfect it's not perfect there are hard days and I know so many others that go through hard days with chronic illness or, you know, um, chronic pain. And um, in this, sometimes you can see what people are going through and sometimes you can't. But all we portray, especially on social media, seems to be this perfect life. Mm, and um, the highlights real. That's what, yeah. And that's why I wanted to share. I just felt this um, overwhelming um, need to, to share my journey. And, um, and I read a lot of Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle and Brene talks about vulnerability, you know, and, and that's where the magic happens is when people become vulnerable and real. And, um, and yeah, and that's where I decided to, to share, I guess, my journey and know that it's difficult, you know, and there are hard days. So I can talk like we have about my positive mindset and where it's got me but there have been days where and not long ago so we had a, a, a big event here at Walker that I'd organized a big cutting event it was our New South Wales cutting futurity that had been postponed from last year to, to um, the wet it was it was the end of last year so we ran it in Walker this year in at the start of March so I went to the first day of that event was pre-works and I had a whole team of horses. And um, the second day, I was feeling unwell. Well, I ended up needing to, it's the only other time that I've needed the methylprednisone um, to try and get rid of my inflammation in hospital. So I was in hospital and I was mm. watching the event online. Yeah. And um, that was a bad week. Yeah. I shouldn't say bad, you know, but it was a very difficult week. And I was stuck in Tamworth. And, um, yeah, Jim was up here with Olivia because she was competing. And um, I found that hard, very hard mentally. The thing that is difficult is when you have a plan and something comes about 
and you can't execute. And that's what's been hard for Jim and the family. So you'll have a plan for the day or you'll have a plan for the week. And um, very rarely, you know, I would say probably half a dozen times in the last four years, but your plan becomes altered because of my, how unwell I am. And um, that's the difficult part. That's yeah. where, you know, you feel. And, and I'm sure that anyone who suffers any, you know, that could come about as, a, as depression, you know, as a result of depression. That could come about as a result of any kind of chronic illness, I think, or maybe it's just life. But when it's out of my control, being mm. the type of person that I am, that's when I struggle on mm. that mental level. Yeah, the meditation teacher, uh, Tom Knowles, talks about how the root of all angst is when things don't meet our expectations. So when our expectations are um, fall, fall through. And I think that's really true thing. And, and COVID certainly on a macro scale and a global scale has shown us just what it means to not have our expectations met. And how that has a flow on ripple effect through everything from the economy to, I think, national mental health, um, this kind of lacklustre feeling. For for you, in terms of your healing, how important have horses been and and in other events throughout your life? Horses have always been a huge part of, of my life because I... I truly believe, you know, they can pick up your heartbeat from 20 metres away. And oh, so that's, is that... they know, yeah, that's true. Wow. Yeah. So they know when something's going on. Mm. They feel it. It's, it's, it's intuitive. And I truly believe the special horses kind of rise to meet you in those moments. and. Um, you know, there, there are some that step up just for me and there are some that, you know, that everybody can ride. Um, but there's nothing more healing, peaceful, soulful. I've always found since I was a little girl to just hopping out and going for a ride. I think it's the power of nature as well, being in nature. But, um, you know, I've always felt, I can remember feeling when I was very young, riding in those mountains and I think I've written I, I, I wrote about this in one of my pieces of writing but riding in those mountains and feeling so small you know according to to, to nature and I've always found that that puts things into perspective for me because mm-hmm. I realize I'm one small person and um and I'm only one small being in this big old world and yes I might be facing adversity on that day but tomorrow is a new day and I've had to learn to take on that approach, especially with MS. And if it's a bad, if it's a bad day and I'm not well, tomorrow's a completely new day. And if I look after myself and I do the right thing, you know, that can be enough sometimes to turn things around. So I have to remind myself of that. You know, tomorrow is a new day, and um, and if I if I can look after myself, hopefully I can get back on track and um, we can enjoy that new day. But there's beautiful times in those days where I have to go to ground too because I never used to do it. And, um, you know, either I can read a book or sometimes I'll listen to a podcast or um, I've started, you know, there's a great, um, um, a couple of great meditation teachers that I listen to and there's one that does um, just the most beautiful, soulful pieces of 
of writing and she shares them. And um, I've subscribed to her. Her name is Sarah Blondin. Oh, she's and, wonderful, um, isn't she? She's wonderful. Yeah. I would never have found her without this, mm. you know. So, um, and some days I just listen to Sarah Blondin. Mm. And I wouldn't do that if I was busy, you know, trying to achieve everything I had on my list for that day. So, so there's gifts. There's gifts that come about as a result of having to stop. Mm. I've been forced. What are some of your aspirations for your new property and, and what do you hope to, to offer up in Volker on that beautiful property of yours? Yeah, so we have um, big, uh, some goals for the future, Jim and I, and uh, I feel very lucky to live here in this beautiful space, but um, we would like to share it um, with others because uh, we feel like there's a lot of healing just in nature and in, in horses and in the environment of like where we are. So what we'd love to do is um, start sort of well, wellness, well-being and um, retreats and um, that revolve around horses but also around, um, you know, um, health and well-being principles and so we will really want to go down that path of like a health and well-being retreat but if we, and people can bring their horses and, and we can learn on horses as well and enjoy our property here. But also I'll be um, launching into doing some clinics. Um, so we've, I've got one down at Cobbity coming up in um, in, this, in May and, um, and, yeah, we'll travel and do a little bit of that. But they will be a, a, not just your typical horse clinic as well. We're going to launch those around health and well-being um, principles included in in with the, the horse principles as well. Because I've been studying um, integrative nutrition through the Institute of Integrative Nutrition of New York, and um, it's been great. It's kind of opened my eyes and um, I guess given me uh, a perspective to be able to bring some of some of the, the lifestyle principles that I live and hopefully share them um, share them with others. But in a lot of those things, I feel like the healing just comes from being with like-minded people. Mm. You know, it's just, I, if we can just provide the space, if we're doing up a cottage, which will be an Airbnb, if we can just provide the space and share our space with others, no matter where they're at in their life, whether there's adversity or trials that they are facing, that's my goal, is to be able to help people in that space. But my, I, on the other side of things, my um, McCallum performance is about um, mindset. And, yes, it can be about mindset facing adversity, but also mindset when you're performing and, and bringing that to the arena or, or any sporting field. So I have a big passion for that side of things as well. So it's not just horsemanship, it'll be lifemanship as well. Exactly, lifemanship. I listened to a podcast about that the other day. I thought it was great. <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Uh, Linda, thank you so much. This has just been such a, an insightful, beautiful discussion and I feel like we've really delved into so much and I really appreciate you opening up and being so vulnerable. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Emily. It's, um, it's been a pleasure and, yeah, I look forward to um, what the future holds and, yeah, hopefully COVID's behind us and we can all just, um, just get back to living our life but also knowing that it's okay to stop and say no to things as well mm, leading our, our best Beth Dutton life but exactly. with less cigarettes 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, but with a little taste of rip in there every now and then as well. <laughs> Linda really is an extraordinary woman. I know a lot of our Grazy Her community were really touched and inspired by her story. If this one episode is just not enough, go back and dig into the back catalogue of incredible stories we've been bringing to life since 2019 on our podcast, Life on the Land. And never fear, we'll be bringing a whole new season to your ears in 2023. In the meantime, please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast and give us a follow on Instagram to be first in the know when our next season drops. Until next time, keep well. My name is Em Herbert and this is a Crazy Her podcast. <laughs>